The rest of y'all, you get to be in here with me as we continue on with our summer series called It's Good. You guys, you want to do the football thing, the, the field goal? Everybody make a field goal and say, it's good. Yeah. We are reminding ourselves that the gospel is good. We live in a world that doesn't always acknowledge that. Sometimes Christianity or the Christian faith or the way Christians live can fall under scrutiny from the wider culture, and they will say, it's not good for the following reasons. Sometimes these reasons are informed, sometimes they're based on misunderstanding, but this summer we said, you know what, we're going to take our teaching time. Part of what we're going to do is equip us to respond faithfully and lovingly and gently to some of those criticisms. So each week for the past several weeks, we've been hearing one of those criticisms. Isn't Christianity not good for this or that reason? And we're responding by saying, no, let, let us help uh, one another understand that. It's good. It is good, good news. So we're going to continue on with that today. The other part of what we do in our sermon time is encourage. First thing is equip. We want to equip ourselves with some information and some responses, but we also want to encourage each other with words from Scripture. So we've been listening to Paul's letters to the, uh, not the Philippian church, he wrote a lot of letters, the, the Thessalonian church. We went through 1 Thessalonians and we listened to a chapter each week from the, the voice translation, which is more of a devotional reading. And we said, all right, the words that Paul wrote as an encouragement to this young church that was sometimes persecuted, that was sometimes misunderstood in a culture where Jesus was not celebrated, how were his words an encouragement to them, and how can they be an encouragement for us today? So hopefully it's been a blessing just to kind of read a chapter at a time and hear these, these faithful words from Paul to this church that he mentored, that he started, but he abruptly had to leave. So now, this morning, we're going to move into the words that he wrote to the church from 2 Thessalonians. Not the second letter that he ever wrote to them, but we only have two letters preserved. And so 1 Thessalonians is one of them. They asked some questions. He responded to them. Uh, he got some more questions from them, and he's responding and encouraging them in their faith. We're going to hear the same theme of just hang on, like be faithful in following Jesus, come what may. Uh, this morning, before I read the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, I want to show you just a quick two-minute informational video from our friends at The Bible Project. By the way, The Bible Project, excellent resource in studying and understanding Scripture. Just go to thebibleproject.com. They've got infographics and podcasts and faithful teachings and also, um, how would you call them? I was going to call them cartoons, but they're just like... Uh, Animation, that's the word that I was thinking about. Yeah, uh, just well done animation videos that kind of give an overview of every book in the Bible. So I wanted to share with you just the first part of the overview that they give for the book of Second Thessalonians. So let's go ahead and play that video and then I'll read it, read the chapter for us. Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. So not long after Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, he got a report about the Christians in Thessalonica, and that the problems he had addressed in that letter not only had continued, but had gotten worse. The persecutions had intensified, and the Thessalonian Christians had become confused and scared about the return of Jesus. So Paul sent off this short letter, which is designed to have three sections that address the three problems in this church. 
Paul first offers hope in the midst of their continued persecution. And then he offers clarity about the coming day of the Lord. And then finally, he brings a really specific challenge to the idle, people who were refusing to work normal jobs. And the end of each of these sections is clearly marked by a short closing prayer. Paul opens with a thanksgiving prayer for the Thessalonians' continued faithfulness and love, and specifically for their endurance. He's learned that their Greek and Roman and perhaps even Jewish neighbors have intensified their persecution of these Christians. They're a religious minority facing violent oppression. And Paul's worried that they might give up on Jesus if it gets worse. So Paul reminds them, like he did in the first letter, that their suffering because of being associated with Jesus, it's a way of participating in God's kingdom. Jesus was inaugurated as king, suffering on the cross. And so his followers will show their victory over the world by imitating Jesus' nonviolence and patient endurance. Also reminds them that this one is forever. When Jesus returns, he will bring his justice to bear on those that have oppressed them. Specifically, he says that their punishment is punished away from the face of the Lord, glory of his power does not speculate here on the fate of those who Jesus, except to say that throughout their lives, they get what they want, relational distance from their creator and And for Paul, this is the only tragedy to choose liberation from Jesus, who is the source of all life and love, is to embrace his own undoing. He closed the thought by praying that God would use their suffering bring about deep character change inside of them. Their lives would bring honor to the name of Jesus. That's what he has to say about uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And now just uh, take a deep breath and hear the words from Paul to this church. The word of the Lord. Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, sometimes it's called, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians that gathers in God our Father and the Lord Jesus be anointed. May grace and peace from our God, from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus the anointed be with you. Brothers and sisters, we cannot help but thank God for you, which is only appropriate because your faith is growing and expanding and because the love demonstrated by each and every one of you is overflowing for one another. So, of course, we proudly bragged about you within circles of God's people at other churches near and far, because even in the grip of much persecution and affliction, you've stood firm in your faith and have persevered. Your sufferings prove that God's judgment is right. The result? Your sufferings have made you worthy, worthy of the kingdom of God, which is the very reason why you are suffering in the first place. It is only right that God would repay with trouble those who have troubled you and give relief to all of you still bandaging your wounds as well as to all the rest of us. On that day, when the clouds draw back, displaying his powerful heavenly messengers in a fiery blaze, Jesus the Lord will appear from heaven, dealing out perfect justice to anyone who doesn't know God and anyone who disobeys the good news of our Lord Jesus. And what is to become of them? They'll pay for what they've done. Their punishment will be eternal destruction. And what's worse? They'll be banished from the Lord's presence and glorious power. 
On that day, when he comes, all the saints in heaven and on earth will celebrate the glory of his power, and all who believe will stand and be amazed. This includes you, because you believed us when we testified on his behalf. All this is why we are constantly praying for you, so that God will make you worthy of the great calling you have received from him, will give you the power to accomplish every good intention and work of faith. And then the great name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified through your lives, and you will be glorified in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus, the Anointed One, our liberating King. Paul is telling the church, stand firm in your faith. And we don't know exactly what they asked him about what's going on, but we can kind of get some clues based on what he does tell them. I can imagine them asking things like, what about people who don't accept Jesus? What about the people who are terrible to us because of who we are? Or the people who prejudge us because they don't even know who we are? What, what's going to happen to them? It's almost like they're paraphrasing that psalm that says, why do the wicked prosper? Crying out to God, saying, like, I'm a faithful person. Why is my life harder than the people who are cheating, than the people who are selfish, than the people who are rejecting God? That doesn't seem fair. Maybe we've had that thought from time to time. But the word comes back from Paul saying, stick with the script. Be faithful. God is going to deal with them. You do not want to be on the wrong side of God's justice. That is an important message that we see here. This is one of those kind of a challenging Bible passage, too, because oftentimes we would like a conclusion that says, you know what, there's a lot of people that just were misguided and they never had the chance to hear the gospel. But in the end, it's all good. We all get to go through the wide gate. But it's passages like this that reminds us people have a choice. Some people will choose to reject God indirectly. Some directly, and there are going to be consequences for that. So it's a reminder for the faithful ones to say, hey, there's a standard, and it's God's standard. We don't get our values from culture. We get our values from what God wants. We're trying to get that as well as we can and follow our Lord Jesus. To transition from what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians to kind of our, our question of the day, a popular kind of counter-narrative that you'll hear from culture today, if we say it's important not to be on the wrong side of God's will, the counter-narrative that you'll often hear is, is people saying, it's important to not be on the wrong side of history. Have you heard people say that? And I think we know what their, their hearts are when, when they describe that. We want to get it right. We don't want to look back and go, man, we were part of that group of people that was way off base. We didn't care for people. We didn't do justice. Whether God's version of justice or just basic humanity, human rights, human dignity, we don't want to be on the wrong side of history. I can understand that. We don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And one issue that seems to come up a lot and that people will throw accusations at Christians on is saying, aren't Christians, haven't they been on the wrong side of history when it comes to women's issues, and slavery issues. The question, the criticism of Christianity that you will often hear worded in a certain number of ways is, isn't Christianity pro-slavery and anti-woman? 
You may have heard somebody ask that. You may not have, but it's important for us to know that this can be an obstacle for non-believers. Say, I can't go down the road with Jesus any farther because when I read the Bible, when I look at Christians throughout history, I've seen examples of them being pro-slavery and anti-woman. You might hear that as a, a believer, somebody who's in church at this particular moment, you might hear that and go, I don't even know what you're talking about. I am not pro-slavery. I am not anti-woman. I never have been. How can you even come up with that accusation? Well, critics and atheists are quick to point out things like opening up the Bible and seeing the mistreatment of women throughout the biblical narrative. There's rape, there's murder, women are sold as property. Polygamy is a common practice in the Old Testament. There's a recurring theme of slavery in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The institution of slavery not being directly rallied against by Jesus or the early church, Christians like the Apostle Paul, they're saying like, hey, they don't seem to be denouncing this the way that I feel like they should. You can go to a book like uh, Philemon, where Paul comes in contact with a runaway slave, and instead of saying, like, yeah, there's freedom in Christ, I'll straighten him out, I know, I know your slave master, we'll work this out. Instead, Paul sends him back and says, go be a good slave. What's up with that? That's pretty messed up. I can't go down the road with Jesus because of that. Christians' complicity with oppressing or silencing women throughout history and benefiting from the slave trade is repugnant to a lot of unbelievers. Christian sexual ethics that seem to infringe upon women's rights is something that will be brought up as a criticism. Verses like the ones that we heard earlier, remember the long, long scripture reading we heard from Ephesians chapter 5, telling women that they need to submit to your husband. Wives, submit. Ooh, I don't like that word, submit. Anybody cringe when we read that part? Submit to your husband? Why? Well, because he, he's the head of you, like Christ is the head of the church. Oh, okay. Say no more. I think we're done here. The conclusion that many will come to is that you are anti-women, you are pro-slavery if you're a Christian. Or at least your scriptures are, or at least you're benefiting from a system that either is or has been in history. That's the criticism you need to be aware of and be prepared to respond to. How would you respond to that? First of all, I recommend take a deep breath. <sighs> Some of you are realizing, like, yeah, my heart rate did go up a little bit just now. Take a deep breath. That's always important. Resist the, uh, the knee-jerk reaction to get defensive. Or be like, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. Gather your thoughts. Remember our standard that we get from Scripture when interacting with unbelievers or critics or anybody is gentleness, respect, and love in all things. Start with a deep breath. Next step, maybe let's admit what is true. The Bible has some parts about women in slavery that can lead people to think that the whole is unsympathetic toward them. And yes, let's acknowledge Christians throughout history and even today have benefited from overlooking Jesus' commands to love everyone and treat them with the dignity that they inherently deserve as children of God. Let's be honest. Let's, let's admit some things. But let's also not leave out the important contributions that Christianity and Christians have made in advocating for women and for the enslaved. And the big picture of Scripture 
which shows that God loves all of his children, including and especially the marginalized, and Christians are called to do the same. So, is Christianity pro-slavery and anti-woman? My answer is no. Not if you're doing it right. But that's the short answer. Allow me a few minutes to give you the medium-sized answer now. Some people find it offensive or degrading in Genesis 2 that God created man uh, and woman and called woman the helper suitable for him. That's another thing that people aren't so excited about. I created man, I need to create a helper suitable for him. You mean like a butler? Like I'm his maid? Uh, I don't think so. Keep in mind the word used there for helper is also a word in Hebrew that's used to describe God himself later on in scriptures. So it can't possibly imply an inferior status. We also need to keep in mind the fact that mistreatment of women that we read about in Scripture is a result of sin. It's not a prescription of what God smiles upon, but it's more of a, when people turned away from God, when people sinned and disobeyed God, the result is the imbalance of male-female relationships. What we read about in Scripture often is not ideal. It's descriptive and not prescriptive. Remember, not everybody in the, in the Bible is a hero just because we know their names. And if you go back to Genesis 3 with the Adam and Eve and the sin, a lot of times it's like, oh, who sinned? Oh, it was Eve. She messed it up for everybody. Women, come on. But go back and read it. And you'll see Adam was right there with her. She eats the fruit and she gives it to her husband who was there with her. Ooh, got to take some responsibility there. Polygamy was part of the Old Testament culture. But by the time of the New Testament, it is not condoned. It's true that Paul does send back the runaway slave Onesimus to his master Philemon, but he sends him back with instructions for Philemon to receive Onesimus as a brother. He doesn't just say, go back to work, be a good slave. He says, treat him as you would treat me. If I'm an honored guest in your home, that's your new relationship with your slave. Live together as brothers because you are now family in Christ. That is an extremely high standard in a culture where slavery was a common practice. Keep in mind, Christian abolitionists existed from the time of the fourth century onward. As soon as Christianity got any power or political uh, ability to create laws and practices in the Roman world, you have Christians there saying, you cannot be a follower of Jesus and own somebody as property. Gregory of Nyssa, a church father, spoke out against slavery in the Roman world. And then later on, uh, reformers like Basil of Caesarea in 428 AD did legislative work leading to the emperor creating protections for sexual slaves, which again was a common practice at the time. And like we pointed out before, Christians were some of the leading voices in abolitionist movements in Europe and then later on in the United States at a time when those nations' economies depended on African slave labor. This was a hard thing for people to give up. It cost a lot of money. It cost a, just a lot of change in your way of life. It's like if I stood up here and said, you know what, guys? I looked at scriptures and I realized we are all in error because we drive cars. Starting now, you need to get rid of your car. Well, how am I going to get around? Well, you're going to have to figure it out. How many of you would do that? Even if you were convinced that what I was saying was right, how many of you would be like, eh, you know, but I, I mean, I need my car. I like my car. I depend on my car. That's how dependent people were on slavery. That's how ubiquitous, how much of a way of life it was. It was a major thing to give up. And culture will often say, it's too hard. It's not worth it. You know what? We've been getting along just fine with it. Let's just overlook the morality of it. And it's Christians who said, 
It doesn't matter if it costs us something. It doesn't matter if we have to change our whole way of thinking. It's the right thing to do because it's God's standard. The problem historically on these issues and other issues we may or may not talk about in the next coming weeks is that Christians sometimes more often than not get their values from culture more than they do from the gospel. This is true on this issue, and this is why we see Christians behaving badly when it comes to these issues, these criticisms that we see. It wasn't that Christians who owned slaves or mistreated women were being too biblical, like they totally understood the Bible and said, like, all right, this is what God wants, let's just make a mess of things. It's that they weren't being biblical enough. Did you know in Europe and in the United States, slave owners who were Christians edited their Bibles? You hear me talk about like Thomas Jefferson cutting out all the supernatural stuff about Jesus in his Bible because it didn't fit with his sense of uh, enlightenment philosophy. Well, slave owners did that too. They called them slave Bibles. And they cut out anything that, that gave hope for, or freedom. A lot of Jesus' teachings, they cut out the entire book of Revelation, which talks about like this marriage of heaven and earth and this vision for how things ought to be. Slave Bibles. And they gave them to their slaves and said, this is what the Bible says after they cut out all this stuff that they didn't want them to know about. That's not being faithful. That's not saying, you know, what's important is to be on the right side of God's justice. You don't even understand what God's justice is. In order to be a slave owner and to like cut all these important teachings out of your Bible, you've got to cut a lot of stuff. We studied Exodus a few months back, and we heard God's repeated commands to Israel saying things like, hey, remember how you were slaves in Egypt? Remember how that was terrible and how that wasn't okay? Well, now that you're not slaves, don't mistreat slaves. Welcome the slave, uh, the, the prisoner of war, immigrants, widows, and orphans. Treat them with exceptional respect and care. And again, this was during a time when capturing prisoners of war, owning people, was totally common. The biblical standard was way higher than the cultural standard. Remember that Jesus didn't command his disciples to become powerful, to become uh, masters over people. He said the exact opposite. He said the way up is the way down. Wash feet. Make yourself a servant. Lay down your life for others. Slave owning is never the way of Jesus. And even the Apostle Paul, this guy who gets criticism for, for things that he's written and things that he did that we see in the New Testament, he carried the mantle of what Jesus said by saying he described himself as a slave. Paul, he begins his letters. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. You could translate that a slave of Jesus Christ. I've given my life to Christ and I've repented. He put his well-being, even his life, on the line for the gospel. Paul got thrown in prison. Paul got beaten. Paul got driven out of cities for preaching the gospel. He lived the message that Jesus commanded. And thinking about women, if you read the gospels, you're going to have to cut out a lot of stuff in order to get to a theology that says women are less than. Here's a quick list. I'm going to blast through this pretty quick. Mary's commended for believing the angel that tells her she's going to have a baby. Remember Christmas time, Mary and the angel comes. She's kind of one of the first people of faith in the gospels. Then you have Mary and Elizabeth in Luke. They're, they're both pregnant together and they're celebrating and they prophesy over Jesus when he's still in the womb. Anna the prophetess prophesies over Jesus after he's born. There are lots of female heroes in Jesus's stories, the parables that he tells, the woman and the lost coin, the persistent widow. You go to John chapter 4, Jesus speaks uh, 
honorably and respectfully to a woman at a well, a kind of woman that the rest of society would have shunned because she was a reputable woman, she was a Samaritan, any number of other reasons they didn't want to interact with her. Jesus heals a lot of women. Simon's mother-in-law, he raises a widow's son. There's a bleeding woman that touches him and is healed. The synagogue ruler's daughter, he heals a woman with a disabling spirit and then calls her a daughter of Abraham. You're healed. You're a daughter of Abraham. He's elevating the status of women in a society that did not even attempt to do that. What about the 12 apostles? Were there any women in that group? Uh, no, but Jesus was recreating this new Israel, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So those were all male. But we read the Gospels, we see he had female followers too, who were right there along with the 12, who were some of the women who were financing his ministry. You get to the story of Mary and Martha. Martha's in the kitchen doing the woman's work. Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, taking on the male role. Martha says, yell at her. She's not in her place. And Jesus says, actually, she's right where she needs to be. Oh, scandalous. On the way to the cross, Jesus stops to address female mourners. And in the resurrection story, who were the first people at the tomb? The women. They were the first witnesses. They were the first evangelists of the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm not just putting this in a list or, or going through this laundry list to say, you know what? There were women in the Bible too. Don't worry about it. This is significant. This is during a time when women were not valued, where women were exploited. Jesus comes along and says, we've got it so wrong. Let me show you the way. The video that we began our worship service with was a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin. She's a, a scholar. She wrote the book that's kind of been our guide throughout this summer series on how Christians can respond faithfully to criticisms. She says this about how Jesus treated women in the gospel. Jesus' valuing of women is unmistakable in a culture in which women were devalued and often exploited. And it underscores their equal status before God and his desire for a personal relationship with them. You can't cut that stuff out of your Bibles. Okay, what about Ephesians chapter 5? Submit to your husbands, wives. You got to submit. This is, the, this is the role that you're called to play. I do pre-marriage counseling with couples who are engaged and, and thinking about or preparing to get married. And I often will have them read Ephesians chapter 5. You know, what does it say about relationships between husbands and wives? And I sent this one couple off to read it. One, like at the end of our session, I said, go read this and then come back and we'll talk about it. First thing I said, what did you think of Ephesians 5? And they said, we thought it was terrible. That was awful. Do not agree with what old Apostle Paul had to say. I said, okay, yeah, tell, me, tell me more about that. We don't like the wives submit to your husbands. That's not, doesn't fit with what we think is right. It's, I mean, it, it just doesn't work. It doesn't, nobody should be subject like that. I pointed out, and I, this happens a lot, when we discuss Ephesians 5, there's more to it than just wives submit to your husbands. I don't know if you knew or if you caught from that long, long reading that we heard earlier. He actually says more to husbands than he does to wives. And again, this is in a culture where husbands could do whatever they want, could have as many mistresses as they wanted, could subject their wives to whatever they felt like. This was the culture with male dominance that this was written into. Paul says something that is just as extreme and revolutionary as what he said to Philemon when he sent Onesimus back to him. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, 
to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body. They feed and they care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. Paul acknowledges here, this is a profound mystery. But I'm kind of getting off track here, he says. I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Wives submitting to husbands, husbands loving their wives with all of their being, just the way that Christ loved the church. It's a two-sided coin. You can't have one without the other one. And I submit that it's not hard to submit yourself to someone who is willing to lay down their very life for you. It's what Christ calls us to do for him. And he puts his body, puts his money where his mouth is by going to the cross. So that's what you're called to do for your wives as well. It's like submitting to somebody jumping into the icy waters to rescue you from drowning. Like, I have no problem submitting to that person. Like, yes, <laughs> you're putting yourself in danger. You're putting yourself at risk. Please, I am going to submit to you. This passage actually says more about Christ and the church than it does about marriage. This is a problem, by the way, that I run into with pre-marriage counseling. Because people are like, give me the verses in the Bible that talks about what it looks like to have a healthy marriage. And I go, okay, well, Ephesians 5, kind of, there's a little bit in the New Testament. You know, you go to Proverbs 31, and there's you know, the, the beautiful woman of good repute and all this. But the truth is... There's not, like, good marriage counseling in the Bible. There's a ton of bad examples of awful relationships in the Bible. But the reason Ephesians 5 is valuable in this conversation is because it basically says, husbands, if you want to be good husbands, wives, if you want to be good wives, do your best to be like Jesus. Do your best to be like Jesus. To lay down your life for somebody. To submit to somebody. To, to say your needs are more important than my needs. To love them with everything you got that puts their needs above your needs. Just be like Jesus. I think sometimes in our culture, and even in our church, we can elevate marriage to a status that the Gospels don't agree with. Jesus was never married. Paul was never married. Paul even talks about, like, if you're a Christian, and you can get away with, like, not ever being married, that's a better road. You're going to be better in better shape, better equipped to following Jesus. I think that God gave us marriage as a model for how our relationship with Christ should be. And within a marriage relationship, you can learn a lot about, wow, what does it mean to sacrifice? Wow, what does it mean that Christ sacrificed for me? But if you never get married, or if you're no longer married, I was starting to think about this church, I would say like 50% or, or, or more of our congregation is unmarried. If we say like, hey, the goal is to get married, and then learn about Jesus from that, you can skip over that if you're not Married. If the goal is Christ, there's other ways to learn about that. And I'm kind of emphasizing this now because it's going to fit in with what we talk about a little bit more next week. Just put that as a placeholder in your mind. Maybe we've elevated marriage. Maybe we've made an idol of marriage in some cases. The whole point of it is to come closer to Christ. All right. Whether someone is married or not. Women are the beloved of God and they should be valued and elevated and respected and protected 
And this, like I said, was a very countercultural message during the time of Jesus. And a lot of the reason that people have advocated for women's rights throughout history is because of the Christian ethic. You heard the, the lady who gave the video at the beginning, Rebecca McLaughlin, said that. Like, if it's natural for us to say, yes, we ought to care for the poor. Yes, we ought to make sacrifices so that people can have dignity, no matter how similar or dissimilar they are from us. That standard is because of Christianity. Without that, there's just a lot of history of people saying, like, the biggest and the strongest, they get to do whatever they want. That's like the law of the jungle. And that was the standard for a long time. That was the standard in the Roman world. And Jesus came and he completely reversed that. And he said, I'm going to show you what the way of God is. I am the biggest and I am the strongest. I am the most powerful person in the world. And I'm not going to lord it over you. And I'm not going to exploit you. And I'm not going to leave you without dignity. I am going to get on a cross and I'm going to be humiliated for you. I'm going to lay down my life and then I'm going to call you to do the same. And that's the gospel. That's important. I keep referencing Rebecca McLaughlin, and I'll get to it now. Uh, I think she's a, a wise voice. She wrote the book that I, I've been reading that informs a lot of this. I, the last three weeks, I put this QR code on the, on the little uh, back of your order of worship. I don't know if anybody has clicked it and listened to the video. It's about a 30-minute talk where she basically gives her whole, like, explains the whole book and what the point is in just a short 30 minutes. So if you haven't done that, please do that. Do it while you're washing dishes. Do it if you're in your car, which again, I don't think we should take away all the cars, but uh, if you have a car, listen to it while you're riding this week. Uh, this is important stuff. She not only says that Jesus is the, the best advocate for women's rights throughout history, but she says that culture's version of women's rights is what she calls a poison chalice. She says that feminists the feminist dream that was sold in the 60s with the promise of free choice and the liberation of women. And hey, we've created this pill that can allow women to have all the commitment-free sex that they want, just like the men folk do. It came with all of these promises. And like, this is what's going to change things. This is what's going to elevate women. Rebecca McLaughlin points out, it didn't do what it promised to do. Statistics have shown that women's overall happiness has declined since the sexual revolution. Studies show that having multiple sexual partners, especially for women, increases the likelihood of depression, suicidal thoughts, drug and alcohol abuse. Says it sounded good, and a lot of people said, this is the way, but she points out, this is not Jesus' version of women's rights. Again, Jesus' version is, lay down your life for another. It's the example that we're called to follow. To be clear, it leaves absolutely no room for us to exploit or devalue women or exert any amount of power over the weak. I'm going to kind of wrap this part up, but I'm going to transition into what we're going to be talking about next week a little bit. I believe that it's this passion that our culture has, whether they're believers or not. There's this passion for human dignity, for protecting the weak, the minority voices, this sense of justice that we, we just innately feel like we should have. One... That's because Christianity got us here and revolutionized culture throughout places in history. It's why it just is natural for people. The second reason, I think, is because we're all created in the image of God and we have this innate sense of how things ought to be. But I think that this sense of justice is why there are so many people who are passionate about supporting the LGBTQ plus community in our culture. They will say, it's wrong to dehumanize someone or curse them or take away their dignity. 
Do Christians agree with that? 100%. Absolutely, that is of the gospel. They'll say it's wrong to leave a hurting or a suffering person voiceless and without an advocate. Christians would agree with that as well. They will say it's wrong to exclude or marginalize or do harm to somebody just because they're different. Christians are on board with that too. There's a lot of similarity. There's a lot of overlap. But they don't agree on everything, even though there is some overlap. When I first moved to Livermore, I started uh, playing music at a bar. It was like an open mic thing. I'd go, go downtown and play music with these guys. I became friends with this guy named Patrick, a young guy, but he was a pretty clear atheist. He was uh, just, you know, I was open about the fact that I'm a, a minister, I'm a follower of Jesus, and he's like, I don't believe in any of that. Atheist, let's just play guitar together. I said, okay, so we did. 10 or 11 years later, fast forward, I run into him again. And he says, hey, you remember me? We used to, I said, yeah, what have you been up to? He's like, well, believe it or not, I'm on staff as a worship leader at a church. I said, wow, there's got to be a story there. Tell me more about that. And he goes, man, I just uh, I met this guy, and they, <laughs> after COVID, they were down. They needed more musicians. They needed a worship leader. And I was like, I like playing music, and I don't know if I believe any of this stuff, but sure, I'll show up. For rehearsals, I'll show up on Sundays and I'll lead worship. He learned the song, sings, and, and leads worship in their church. And he said, I love the church. I've gotten to know some great people. I can see how they love each other. I can see how they have this solid foundation and this hope, and I admire that. And he said, I'm closer. I, I don't consider myself an atheist anymore. I believe there's something. I'm not 100% sure what it is, but I'm, I'm getting closer. Said, Man, that's awesome. As we continued talking, he confessed to me, he said, one of the main obstacles for me in my faith, one of the main deal breakers for me is my church's stance on same-sex relationships. That they have, a, they have a traditional view on same-sex relationships. He's like, I can't surrender my life to Christ if that's something that he's asking of me. It's a deal breaker for this young man. And it's a deal breaker for a lot of people. You may know that, you may not, but it's important to know. They will challenge Christians with questions like, how can you love someone without giving them the thing that they're asking for? They'll say, isn't it wrong to not affirm someone's sexual identity, which they say is at the very core of who they are? These are challenging questions, right? Do we need to do another deep breath? Are we everybody okay? Uh, I won't keep you guys in suspense in case you're wondering. My, my stance personally on sex is pretty traditional. I believe after studying the scriptures and their historical context, and honestly, just like trying to listen to as many voices as I can. I believe that God's design for sexual relationships is one man and one woman in a committed marriage relationship. And I believe, again, that the purpose of that it's not just so I can have a best friend, so I can make an idol of my spouse, so I can feel like I've got something that everybody needs to have too. It's to point to Jesus. It's to understand the love that Christ has for me. And you can get that in marriage and you can get that someplace else. But that's my understanding about why God created marriage and how it's supposed to go. But it may not surprise you to hear that not everybody in the world agrees with that stance. May or may not surprise you to hear that not everybody in the church agrees with that stance. So we got some big questions. What does it mean to love and follow Jesus and to love our neighbors when we possibly hold increasingly unpopular views in society? 
how do we respond to some of the big questions that are obstacles and deal breakers for them? Ah, at this point, I will leave you in a little bit of suspense. That's what we're going to be talking about next week. I'm going to talk a little bit about it, but we're also going to do some listening together. We're going to listen to some voices that are closer to this issue than I have. Uh, we'll give you a spoiler, but like, go and scan this code and listen to what Rebecca McLaughlin has to say about it, because there's a lot of surprises there. It's faithful. I think she's a faithful voice. I think you'll learn a lot. We're going to keep talking about this. But meanwhile, I want to go back to where we started this whole thing. Love, respect, and gentleness. Why the deep breaths, any of these issues, and more, can get people just really, really upset because they're personal and they affect us personally. And we're not just talking about issues, we're talking about people we love, relationships. And I said a lot today, but I'm, I'm hoping if you hear anything, it's the standard of Christ. It's the gospel says, love God, love your neighbor, lay down your life, be willing to sacrifice, whatever that looks like. I should just shut up. Uh, let me close this out in a prayer, and then I'm going to invite you to, um, to do some prayer groups praying for one another. That's how we'll end today. Let's pray. <sighs> Father in heaven, your name is special. Your name is sacred, you are unique, you are holy. We pray this morning that your kingdom will come and that your will is done on earth as it's done in heaven. We pray that we can hear your voice, we can do what you would have us do. We would understand your will and have courage to do it, even if it costs us something even if it requires us to change, even if we're not 100% sure if we're on the right path, increase our faith, increase our trust as we follow Jesus. Pray that you fill us with your spirit, a spirit of wisdom that comes from heaven. Give us a spirit of surrender. Let us submit to Christ as he lays down his life for the church. Pray that your kingdom will come with us, maybe because of us, but even in spite of us. We pray that your kingdom will come. We ask that you give us what we need. We ask that you will forgive us when we're wrong and teach us to forgive others. We ask that you will lead us away from falsehood, away from evil, away from things that are not of you and things that are not true. We believe that this is your kingdom, and you deserve all the glory and all the praise. May we give it to you in our worship services. May we give it to you in our lives. We pray all of this in the holy name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. And one more thing, because there's always one more thing. Uh, my door is open. I don't mean this to be like the beginning and the end of a conversation. Let's not talk about it. The reason we're talking about this kind of stuff this summer is because we need to talk about it. We need to be faithful. We need to love our neighbors. We need to understand what we believe and why. 